I want to start tonight by saying that there may be a thing or two that may kind of rub people the wrong way about tonight. Um, and I kind of apologize for that. Um, because some of the things I'm going to say, some of the things I want to tackle, even if it is a little bit on the shorter side, are important things. So, as we continue into Acts, we're in chapter 22, and Paul is standing in front of his accusers. And what we see Paul really do in the first 21 verses of this text is to really give his testimony. His testimony of a radical transformation that came to him through Christ, a transformation that took one of the biggest enemies of the church in the beginning and turned him into one of arguably the greatest theologians that the church has ever seen. We're still reading the letters that he sent to churches 2,000 years later. The same man that in verses 19 and 20 said, Lord, they themselves know that I am, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul has no issue admitting his fault or his guilt. He was more than, in, in the end, he was more than just a passive participant watching these types of things go down. He himself was hunting people to bring people in front of these groups, like the synagogue that he's in front of now, and in most cases, most likely put these people to death as well. When Paul tells his testimony, he does a few very important things. He speaks in the native language, not the Greek that you would normally hear from people in the area at that time. He identifies with his, with his inheritance as a Jew, his training under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most respected theologians in Judaism at the time. So he sat at the feet of a great teacher and was trained in the ways of God, and it gave him the zeal for the law of God that he speaks of. This is extremely important for this group of people because with this, they would see that it would be ridiculous to think that he was opposed to anything that they would teach in their synagogue. He then went into the persecution of the church, showing that pre-conversion, he was just as adamant as they were about snuffing out this way. All of these points made just made Paul's conversion even more powerful. And they were all at full attention up to that point. If this section of scripture will teach us anything, it's that you're never too far. You're never too big of an enemy of the church. You've never done enough wrong. You've never seen enough. Enough things have never been done to you that the grace of God and the blood of Jesus cannot cover. We live in a society today that likes to act like there's no actual such thing as redemption. And the only type of redemption that we see, especially in places like the media, in all media, I'm not just talking about one side of the media, 
The only type of redemption you'll see is some political fantasy that just doesn't have any point to it. And you'll see it now even with otherwise orthodox theologians and pastors will fall into this as well. There's two books from both sides of this perspective that I would recommend reading. So you can get both sides on that type of issue. It's Vodibachum's Fault Lines. And then I cannot pronounce the gentleman's name to save my life, but it's called Reading While Black. He is an Anglican priest. But back to these types of stories of redemption, you see what true redemption really looks like. Redemption in the eyes of a holy God, the transformation that is miraculous in nature. I know that I've done this a couple times while I've been up here where I kind of get into my testimony a little bit, but I feel like this section of scripture for me was on purpose because of the past that I've had with the church. So it makes a, and this is no type of humanly purpose. Rudy asked me to do this, what, two weeks ago. We had really no thought that this was even the text. So I want to dig into it just a tad bit because our testimonies can be used as a tool for God to draw people in. We can't save people ourselves. No matter what anybody says, we cannot draw people to God ourselves, but we can be used to open that door so God can use his providence and bring them in. So, I was raised in an Episcopalian home. Uh, We didn't go to church very often until I was a little bit older, and at that point, I started to want to take it seriously. Ended up becoming a confirmed member of the Episcopal Church, which I later renounced. Um, For those of you that don't know, the Episcopal Church is the United States version of the Church of England, basically. It's Anglican in nature. And even to this day, I still really stand in that Reformation Anglican heritage. As somebody that sees myself as more of a reformed Wesleyan hybrid type of thing that doesn't make sense to most people theologically. Um, I see the basis where Orthodox Wesleyan and Methodist theology bases itself in Anglicanism, and I find myself there. But we're not going to jump into a history lesson on John Wesley or anything like that tonight. So I got confirmed, got my fancy Book of Common Prayer, that I really actually wish I could still find because it was actually really cool. (laughs) But then questions started popping in my head. Um, Questions that fall into the heads of a lot of new believers or young believers. Questions of biblical authority. Questions of history. Questions of science. And... I'll say at the time I was at the wrong church to have those types of questions. The rector of that parish was a decent man. I love the man dearly because of the path that he ended up taking me down that led me to these types of positions today. But him, like many other in the more mainline 
denominations was more of a progressive Christian. And with those types of groups, people that have a lot of questions can, be get, can get drawn certain ways. I want to take two quotes from websites of a progressive church. The first one is that we do not believe that the Bible is the inerrant or infallible word of God. The second is that we do not believe that people of other faiths will go to hell unless they are converted to Christianity. With that, there's also a lot of political things that I'm not going to dive into because they have nothing to do with the gospel. And I'm not trying to sit up here and bash certain denominations, certain churches. That's not my intent. But I think that there are important doctrines and important core beliefs that we have to have. And the authority of Scripture falls as on the top three on that. So when I went with these questions, I was told a few different things. I was told that there was no real answers to these questions, that we cannot take the Bible as literal, or that it wasn't completely true, which threw me for a little bit of a tailspin, especially with the authority that the Bible says that it has. So I did what any other teenager of the internet age will do, and I started Googling which is terrifying when you know you're actually looking for one type of answer and you're going to end up finding it. And I fell down this hole of what I know now is fallacy. And it started with a documentary that I ended up watching where it explained that the story of Jesus was nothing more than just a retold story that had roots in Egyptian, Hindu, Buddhist and Greek mythology. And with nobody there to really show the error of that, I took it at face value, started going to other places, seeing the same type of things said on those places, and all it did was kind of just pound that belief into, this, into where it was. That's when the spiral started. I became an enemy of the church. A lot like Paul, not as deadly, by any stretch, but I would debate people outside of churches, um, telling them about these roots in these mythologies and asking them basically why they were so dumb. <laughs> and it hurts me to think now that especially people in my age demographic or maybe a little bit younger, the people that I may have pulled away from the church with those types of things. This would continue. Casey knows it better than anybody else. Um, the distaste that I had for Christianity, the mocking, the hatred, the thoughts of how people could be so stupid, even to the point where I asked Casey that question a few times because at the time she was heavy into church. And that ended up causing an issue there, amongst other things. But I was getting to the point where I was getting uncontrollable about it. I would wear shirts with pentagrams on them. I just didn't care. It wasn't a big deal to me. Years later, I become a general manager of a retail store. And this is probably the part where some of you guys have heard it before, because I think this is where I usually start when I'm talking about a certain area in my life. 
Um, I wasn't making crazy money by any stretch of the imagination, but I had a decent car, had a decent place to live, bills were getting paid, I was able to go out and do the things that I wanted to do. And I never really debated religion in the store because it just wasn't the place for it. And one day, a gentleman walked through the door. I wish I knew his name. Um, and after a long, lengthy discussion, the idea of religion came into conversation. He was a Christian. And after a good, I'd probably call it half an hour, um, I finally got to a point of frustration where I made the dumbest yet best decision that I ever made in my life. And that decision was to challenge God. And what I did was basically say, if there is a God and this is the true God that you say he is, then I need to be humbled and then that needs to be proven to me. So all of that that man said was, I'm going to pray for you on that, but you need to be careful what you ask for. It took some time, completely forgot about the entire situation, and then things snowballed. Before you knew it, car was gone, place to live was gone, I was without a job. Bathing myself in public sinks, along with washing my clothes in there. Um, out of pride, I would never ask people for money, but I would search parking lots and things like that for change so I could come up with a little bit of money to eat, which I will say, if you ever do get in a spot, those little green side dish packets, I don't know who may, I don't know if it's Marie Calendar or what it is, but those things are actually pretty filling. <laughs> they actually do the job when you're in a, when you're in a stretch there. <laughs> The whole thing could have ended quickly. Um, all I really had to do was pick up the phone, and that whole situation could have ended. But pride got in the way there. I was blinded by that pride, and I just wouldn't allow myself to do anything about it. So things went on like that for a while. I secluded myself from family. Um, the idea was until I was able to get another job and I was able to get back on my feet a little bit and you know, they didn't have to know that this was happening. One day, I'm walking through the Walmart parking lot in Denton, um, scouring that parking lot for change and I just had enough. My mind for probably a good week before that consistently went to the conversation that I had had with that gentleman. And then I really started to think about how quick, quick things snowballed after that conversation. And I ended up falling to my knees in a very cinematic fashion. It was very, it was very strange. Um, and I gave in. And at that point, things started to slowly turn around. Sorry. And don't get me wrong, I still had a lot of questions. I still needed a lot of things explained to me. 
But out of the providence of God, I ended up in the right church at the right time. Some of you, probably a lot of you, because a lot of everybody comes from the United Methodist Church in some sort of fashion. Um, so a lot of you probably know Pastor Mark Farnell. Um, sometime after this whole scenario, I was back on my feet. I had an apartment, and Casey and I were back together after a few years stretch. And we ended up in a pulpit, or not a pulpit, in a pew in his church the week that he was starting a sermon series on the evidence of Christianity. And it was everything that you needed. It was historical, science, philosophical. Any questions that you could really raise were brought up in that series. And if you had any questions about that series, there was a study right after that took as long as it needed to take for you to get a further understanding on what the sermon was about. I ended up really giving my life over in that church during a Sunday night service. And I want to be clear that this story isn't actually really about me. This story is a story of the work of God and what he can really do in his sovereignty and his power. I was prideful. I was an adulterer. I was a hater, an all-around sinner of sinners. And that's why for as long as I've been in the faith at this point, I've always resonated deeply with when Paul says that he is the chief of all sinners. I've always said since then that if I can walk into a room and I don't feel like I'm the worst sinner in that room, I really need to step back and humble myself before I walk into that room. But I want you to understand this. Having sound reasoning is good, but we should also just be prepared to simply share what Christ has done in our lives. No matter how we present our message, not everyone will accept it. As Paul knew, we must faithfully and responsibly present the good news and leave the results to God. We see in verse 21 where Paul tells this group what he was told to do. And it reads, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, meaning that he was going to bring the Gentiles into the faith. And this crowd that was so attentive, so captivated by the story, turned on him in a split second. In verse 22, it reads, Up to this word they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And the tribune, tribune, that sounds right. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he must be examined, examined by flogging. Paul's saying that he was to lead the Gentiles to Christ was way too much for some of these listeners. 
the fact that they would not have to become a proselyte in Judaism before being right in the eyes of God was blasphemous to them. They were preparing to stone Paul, throwing dust into the air, tearing their clothing. And most commentaries will be very honest here where they say that a lot of it would end up being a racial thing. They had been taught their entire lives and for the Jews correctly that they were God's chosen people. So how would this man have the audacity to say that Gentiles could be brought into the church and treated just like they were? When they heard that, they lost all semblance of self-control. To turn to Jesus for real and not a superficial cultural Christianity that doesn't really mean anything, a, a real relationship with him won't always show the best earthly results. You'll lose friends, lose relationships, people can turn against you. Depending on where you live in the world, you can be killed. I've mentioned it plenty of times of the Christians in China and the Middle East. Right now in the Middle East, the Taliban is going through people's cell phones. And if they see a Bible app on your phone, you're killed instantly. Luckily, we're not in one of those types of places today. But the feeling of persecution and real persecution is part of it. The church has been persecuted from the beginning. It's not easy sometimes, and that's okay. You must stand true and strong in the faith. Our relationship with God is much greater than any of the relationships that we'll have here. We're in a weird place in our country where we're not persecuted for our faith, but sometimes it might feel like it. Our faith, more, more or less, just really makes people feel uncomfortable. But that's really the gospel. The gospel, if it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, somebody else should probably tell you the gospel because you didn't hear it, right? <laughs> it's bothersome to know that we were so bad, so sinful, that God needed to send his son to die for us. Another person needed to suffer this consequence for our sin. That always sits rough with me. Um, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. The Bible says that the price of sin is death. And for a group that continuously sins, we should be worried about that. But that price has been paid in full. Isaiah says that our good works are but filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. That's not going to get you into heaven. You can try and try as hard as you can, 
But if you don't know Christ and have a real relationship with him, at the end of the day, none of those good works are going to matter. So, as I said, this one was a little bit on the shorter side, um, a little bit shorter than I actually expected thinking about things. But I want to leave us to meditate on a passage from Lamentations 3 tonight. The steadfast love of our Lord never ceases. His, mercy, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So I just want to end in prayer. Lord, we come before you humble. We want to know you and be in relationship with you. We know that there will be trials. We know that we may be hurt. But as I just read, your mercies never fail. We pray for those that don't know you, our loved ones, our coworkers, our friends, even the people that we don't know. And we pray that they would come to you in a real relationship. And that any questions that they may have, even if we don't have those answers at the moment, that we can come to those come with those answers and figure this thing out with them. We pray that you can help and guide us in that. And guide them to yourself. We love you. We thank you. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.